Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 5. Sorry, Genesis chapter 6. Chapter 5 was last week. Genesis chapter 6, if you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 5. As you find your place, one of my favorite things in preaching is when we come to a passage that is very familiar to most people, but then as we dig in, we find things that we never picked up on before that either deepen or perhaps even change our perspective on it. And we get to do that today as we come to the story of Noah's Ark. Now, Noah's Ark actually takes up the next uh, four chapters, which is more than what we can cover in just one sermon or at least it's more than I want to try to cover in just one sermon. And so we're going to break it down over the next few weeks, and we're going to begin this morning by looking at the universal problem of sin and God's determination to accomplish salvation through judgment. And so we're in Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so last week, we traced the lineage of Adam through Seth all the way down to Noah and his three sons. And uh, you'll remember that Lamech named Noah in hope that he would be the one to deliver mankind from the curse of sin. But while Noah is going to be a major player in salvation history, it will not be as the Redeemer. As we pick up here in chapter 6, the scene moves to a time when when mankind was multiplying over the face of the land. And as this happens, daughters are born to them. And verse 2 says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, this development is a problem, right? In the same way that Eve saw that the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was, was desirable and took it. So these sons of God saw that the, the daughters of men were attractive and took them. Now the question that we need to answer is, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? And it probably won't surprise you to know that there are a variety of interpretations Uh, These first four verses are almost universally acknowledged as the most difficult part of the entire book of Genesis. But in my view, it really comes down to two positions. And so the first position is that the sons of God refer to the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men refer to the female descendants 
of Cain. And so in other words, the, the sons of the chosen line of Seth begin to marry the daughters of the rejected line of Cain, so, so that the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent be, begin to mix. The other interpretation, which we talked about when we went through 1 Peter, is that the sons of God refer to wicked angels, and the daughters of men refer to female humans. Now, option one makes sense, because we naturally assume that humans would be marrying other humans, and it seems really weird to think that angels would somehow get into that mix. And also, we just got done tracing the lineages of Cain and Seth, so it would be logical to talk about a time where those two lineages began to compromise, the, the faithful line with the unfaithful line. However, and this won't surprise you if you were here through 1 Peter, I'm convinced that the second interpretation is actually the right one for a number of reasons. So first of all, the chapter begins by referring to mankind as a whole, right? not just the, the line of Seth, but the, the human population overall. And so if Moses is referring to the two human lines, it would seem much more straightforward to simply say that the, daughters of, or that the sons of Seth married the daughters of Cain. That would communicate exactly what is happening without the possibility of confusion. Uh, secondly, the angel's view is the oldest one, having been, having been held by the ancient Jews as well as the early church. Beyond that, I think it's important for us to note that the exact phrase, sons of God, occurs exactly four times, four other times in the Old Testament, and each time it is referring to angelic beings, not people. And then finally, what we find in the letters of Peter and Jude in the New Testament seem to indicate that this is what is happening here. Uh, you'll remember that Peter and Jude are appealing to their readers based on a time linked with Noah where angels disobeyed. They, they left their proper place and, and ended up being punished for their sin. And if this is not what they're talking about, then I'm not sure what they're referring to because there's nothing else in the Old Testament that would seem to match up with that besides what we see here in Genesis 6. And so as crazy as it may seem, I think that's what's happening here. Now at the end of the day, we can't be 100% sure of which interpretation is correct. Uh, there are biblical scholars who love the Lord and are way smarter than me who affirm both of these positions, and both interpretations have difficulties, and they leave us with unanswered questions. The good news is that whichever position we take, the, the major point here actually remains the same. Right, whatever the specifics are, the bottom line is something is happening that should not be happening. People are entering into marriages that they should not enter into. And this is compromising the image of God in mankind and potentially hindering the purpose of God to bring salvation through the seed of the woman. And so in verse 3, the Lord declares that his spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. And this is another complicated statement that I take to mean that God is not going to tolerate this activity and allow it to go on indefinitely. And so in response, the Lord states that the days of mankind shall be 120 years. And this is another complicated statement. Uh, some people take this to mean uh, that this is God shortening uh, the lifespan of humans to a maximum of 120 years. So in contrast to the extreme lifespans that we read about in chapter 5 last week. Uh, but I think that it's referring to a 120-year period 
before God will execute judgment for these sins. In other words, this is a 120-year countdown. And then in verse 4, you're not going to believe this, there's another complicated statement. As Moses refers to the Nephilim who were on the earth in those days, who were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the problem here is that we don't know what this means. The word Nephilim is not a translation. It is the Hebrew word itself simply brought over into English. And the reason it's not translated is because we don't know what to translate it as. What is a Nephil? Nobody knows. And so in context, it would seem that the Nephilim were a group of fierce warriors, which is why that they're referred to as the mighty men, the men of renown. And we see something like this again in Numbers 13, when the Israelite spies convince the Israelites not to go into the promised land. They tell them, we saw the Nephilim in there, and they'll kill us all. We can't, we can't go in there. And so uh, many interpreters who take the angelic view of the sons of God have understood the Nephilim to be the offspring that comes from the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men. Uh, in other words, these were some kind of half-angel, half-human monsters. But you'll notice that Moses says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And that would seem to indicate that the Nephilim are actually distinct from the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. And so actually, because the Israelites were likely exposed to Egyptian and Mesopotamian uh, folklore during their time in slavery, folklore that was, that was full of stories of semi-divine creatures, it's possible that Moses identifies the Nephilim in this context specifically to make it clear that they are not those kinds of half-angel, half-human monsters. They may be fierce warriors, but, but they are not invincible, and we can defeat them with the Lord's help. And so I lean toward that view. But whoever the Nephilim are, it's clear from this initial paragraph that things on earth are not going according to God's original intent. And so the Lord is going to respond to this craziness as we pick up again, beginning in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so as we pick back up in verse 5, the Lord sees that the wickedness of man is great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Now this is the strongest statement we have seen yet about the natural, the now natural sinful inclinations of humanity. We, by our very nature, rebel against God's design and his commands. We want to do what we want to do, and we want to do it how we want to do it, and we want to do when we want to do it. Even the good things that we do are tainted with sinful motivations, and, and the result of this is that the earth that God created to be good, very good, has now become a cesspool. While we've seen that humans were created to fill the earth with living representations of God's goodness and glory, 
Instead, we see here that the earth has been filled with wickedness. And verses 6 and 7 say that the Lord regretted that he had made man, and it grieved him to his heart. And so he determines to blot out mankind and all of the different uh, <clears throat> creatures because he is sorry that he made them. Now when it says that the Lord regretted or that it grieved him, we have to be very careful that we understand that properly because misunderstanding it can lead to some very inaccurate conclusions about who God is or about how he works in the world. And so we need to be clear that God is omniscient, right? He knows everything. And so there's never a situation in which he is surprised by something. There is never a contingency that he has not planned for. And so he is never in a position where he would need to change his mind in the way that we often do as humans. In fact, Numbers 23, 19 very clearly says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. In the same way, 1 Samuel 15, 29 says that God will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Beyond that, God is immutable and he is impassable. He cannot change, nor can he be influenced by any kind of outside agency. And so when we went through Malachi in chapter 3, the Lord declared about himself, I, the Lord, do not change. And so in light of this, we need to understand these kinds of expressions, saying that God regretted or he grieved and so forth, as what we call accommodation. They're ways of explaining what God is doing in such a way that we as humans can understand it. Right, so for example, verse 5 says that God saw. But as a spirit, we recognize that God does not have eyeballs in the same way that we do as people. Right, in just a moment, God is going to be described as walking. But again, we, re we realize that God does not actually have legs. These are expressions of God's knowledge about a situation and his relational nature with his people. And so when we say that God regretted or grieved, that's an expressive way of saying that he is taking a negative action in contrast to a previous positive direction. Right? Whereas God previously blessed mankind, he is now going to wipe them out in judgment. Now beyond the, the surface and obvious problem of human extinction, there's a deeper problem here because the Lord has promised that a descendant of Eve is going to eventually defeat the serpent. And so, if God kills everybody here, then that brings God's promise of salvation to nothing, because there will be no more descendants of Eve. But in the midst of this situation, we find a small sliver of hope in verse 8, when it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so out of the whole world headed for judgment, one man is in line for an exception. Now, in the popular kids' version of Noah's Ark, we often make it seem like everyone else on earth was wicked except for Noah. Noah was the one lone good guy. And in a sense, that's true, but not yet. That comes in the next section. For now, notice that verse 8 doesn't say everyone was wicked but Noah. It says everyone was wicked... But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And as you know, we often define grace as unmerited favor. And so this is simply the reverse expression. Right? Finding favor with God means to receive his grace. 
And so we need to understand that Noah is not a perfect person. Noah deserves to be judged just like everybody else does in this story. But the Lord chooses to be gracious to him, which is going to make all the difference in the world, literally. And so in the midst of a world gone wrong, the Lord has chosen Noah to receive his grace. And we'll see what happens next as we pick up again in verse 9. It says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark, and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them." Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And so picking up in verse 9, if you're paying attention, you will notice that phrase, these are the generations that, that section uh, this new passage off as another major section of the story. And so Noah has been introduced up to this point, but from now on, the story is going to focus on him. And we've just seen that Noah has been chosen by the Lord to receive his grace. Noah has found favor with God. And now we see that that grace is transformative. Noah is described here in verse 9 as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and that he walked with God in close relationship. Again, this is not intended to portray Noah as being sinless, but as always, God's grace leads to a response of faith, and genuine faith is always reflected in a lifestyle of obedience to the Lord. And so in contrast to the rest of the world around him in his generation, Noah has been set apart for God's saving purposes. And because of that, he is noticeably distinct from everyone else. And before the story continues, verse 10 reminds us of the fact that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, verse 11 brings us back to the issue at hand. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And so as people have thrown off God's design for them, it has resulted in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. 
everyone is out for themselves, and anyone who gets in the way of what someone wants becomes an enemy to be removed. All right, we've already seen the story of Cain murdering Abel. We've seen the story of, of Lamech celebrating his violence against another person. But over time, we see this attitude came to characterize the world as a whole. Right, back in chapter 1, the Lord looked at his finished creation, and verse 31 said, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But now, verse 12 says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. So things have become the exact opposite of what God intended them to be. And so in verse 13, the Lord fills Noah in on his plan to cleanse the earth of this evil. But here we see that judgment is not limited to humans. It, it includes the animals as well. Right, the Lord refers to all flesh, not just mankind. And he says that all flesh has corrupted its way. And so without having specific details of what this means, we understand that, that having come under the curse because of human sin, the animals themselves have now begun to act outside of God's original design for them. And so they need to be destroyed along with humans. Right, but the Lord has determined to save Noah. And so in verse 14, he tells him to build an ark out of gopher wood. Now, we're not sure what gopher wood was. And this is the only time we find it in the Bible, and there's nothing called gopher wood that we are aware of today. But apparently, we trust it was ideal for boat building. And so the Lord tells Noah to build rooms in this ark and to cover the inside and outside with pitch or, or tar in order to make it watertight. And the measurements that the Lord gives him for, for the dimensions of this ark are in cubits. Now, a cubit is the distance from your elbow to the tip of your fingers. That's not very precise because everyone's going to have a slightly different length from their elbow to the tip of their fingers. But for our purposes, give or take a little bit, these dimensions would translate to the ark being approximately 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall, which if you're better at math than me, uh, you'll know would create a, a storage space that was, was equal to over 418 wheelers. And so that you can get a lot of stuff in there. And the ark needs a roof, a door, and three decks. And we see this is not a ship for navigation purposes. This is a humongous flotation uh, device, which is designed simply to keep what's inside of it above water. And that leads us to verse 17, where we finally see why this ark is necessary. And that's because the way the Lord is going to judge the earth is by bringing a great flood that destroys everything in its path. And then in verse 18, for the first time, we come across one of the most important words in the Bible, which is the word covenant. The Lord promises to establish his covenant with Noah. And a covenant is, is a binding relational agreement between two parties that, that outlines the responsibilities toward each other that, that both uh, must fulfill. And they often include blessings for abiding by the covenant and penalties for breaking the covenant. So we're going to look at this more when we actually get to it. But the Lord is promising here to bind himself to Noah. And so he allows Noah and his family to go into the ark to survive the flood of judgment. Not only that, but in a similar way, the Lord tells Noah in verse 19, that two of every kind of animal will be on board with him, one male and one female. 
And so representatives of the animal kingdom will also be allowed on the ark in order to survive this judgment and be able to start over after the flood. And so the final preparation is for Noah to gather up enough food for all of them to last through this whole ordeal. And verse 22 says that Noah did this. He did everything the Lord commanded. Now again, this shows us the reality of Noah's faith. And we have to understand that this would be an incredible undertaking, a massive undertaking. If you're familiar with the replica of Noah's Ark that they built up in Kentucky, it took a team of over a thousand professionals with modern technology over a year and a half to build that. And so for just Noah and his three sons thousands of years ago, this would have taken decades to accomplish. And all of this time and all of this effort are being put into something to avoid a reality that that has never happened before. Nobody has ever seen anything like what God is saying is about to happen. And so this obedience, again, demonstrates Noah's faith in God's word. And that faith is going to be rewarded when we come back again next week for chapter 7. And so in our passage this morning, we see the ultimate results of the spread of sin throughout mankind and the Lord's determination to execute judgment against it. Everything on earth is going to be destroyed by a great flood. And only Noah, his family, and representatives of the animal kingdom are going to survive to start over again. In terms of the story, we could could think of this chapter as the calm before the storm. This is a time of warning and of preparation for Noah and his family as they respond to God's word in anticipation of of experiencing salvation. And as we take a moment to reflect on this passage for our lives today, I think we have to recognize that we are living in a similar situation. If you watch the news, if you look around at the world, if you read the headlines, then it's not hard to see that we live in a world that is characterized by wickedness and corruption and violence. It's impossible to avoid. And once again, the Bible declares that judgment for that is coming. In Acts chapter 17, Paul was preaching in Athens and he warned the people there that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. This time, the judgment is going to be final. And there are going to be no second chances. The Bible makes the awful reality of hell crystal clear. Judgment is coming for human sin. Fortunately, God continues to grant his favor to undeserving sinners. And so in Titus chapter 3, Paul proclaims, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so we see that now, rather than just one man and his family, God's grace through Jesus is available to anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in what Jesus has done to save them through his life, death, and resurrection and bearing the penalty for our sin for us so that we can be forgiven. And then, like Noah, 
we see that God's grace is transformative for our lives as well. All right, Noah received God's grace and became a living testimony to the world around him of the goodness of God and the coming judgment. He was blameless in his generation. And in the same way, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul reminds us that as those who have been saved and who have received the grace of God in Christ, we are to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. As we receive God's favor, his grace to us through Jesus. We receive that so that we can in turn extend it out to others, so that others can receive God's offer of grace. And so this morning, as we live in the calm before the storm, may we, may we respond to the offer of God's grace and then live faithfully in the midst of this crooked world until the Lord returns to judge the world and save his people. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we are grateful for your word. Lord, as we come to what is, for for most of us, probably a very familiar story, we are are thankful for the fact that, uh, on the one hand, you judge sin. Father, that, that all of the wrong things, the terrible things that are done in this world will not go unpunished, but that, Father, you will execute a perfect judgment. And Father, we also thank you for the fact that we do not have to bear that judgment ourselves because you have sent Jesus to bear our punishment for us. And Father, as we think about living in the calm before the storm, I pray that each one of us this morning would take that seriously. Lord, that we would see that clearly. And that Father, we would turn to Jesus for salvation. And that having done so, we would live our lives blamelessly in the midst of this world so that our lives point to the hope that can only be found in Jesus. And so, Father, as we take time to respond to your word this morning, we ask that you would help us to respond in line with your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.